All right, well, good morning. I feel like I should say Merry Christmas, uh, given the weather outside, and certainly uh, say Happy Valentine's Day to those of you that care about such things. Um, Welcome to our next uh, meetings gathered together. Again, we continue to be hopeful that restrictions will ease in the coming weeks and allow us to at last be together again in this place. But in the meantime, thanks for gathering us in this way and making time for this today. We're going to do what we always do now. At uh, this time in our service, we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you there, a uh, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it to our passage today? Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking today at verse 5, but I want to just read us into it starting at verse 1. So let's look at this together. Matthew writes this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And then here's where we looked at, where we'll be focusing on today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll just dive into this together. Spirit of God, come now, we pray, and illumine the preaching of your word. Open up our hearts, our minds, our ears uh, to see, pierce uh, the darkness, Father, and uh, open up our eyes to see what it is you want us to see here. Show us what you want us to know, and then help us to live, live it out, live according to it. Uh, as citizens of your kingdom, help us live this way. Uh, and now, as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, whether you have read the book itself, uh, originally first published in 1865, or you've just seen, I don't know, plays based on it, uh, movies, animated classics based on it, or whatever it is, I think it's safe to say that to one degree or another, reading Lewis Carroll's classic novel, Alice in Wonderland, leaves us all feeling as dazed, confused, and disoriented as poor Alice after having fallen down the rabbit hole. Um, I don't know if that's your experience as well. This is, it's a messed up book in a lot of ways. Um, and, and whether it's her conversations with the Mad Hatter, uh, the Caterpillar, or even the Cheshire Cat, one of the literary devices that Carol uses so masterfully in order to help recreate that same feeling of disorientation for us is having all these various characters give direction and advice and guidance to Alice that's so strange, that's, that's so uh, cryptic, that like Alice, we're never entirely sure whether these advisors are trying to help her or trying to harm her. We're kind of like, uh, are you a friend? Are you, are you helping her? Like, it's hard to tell, and it leaves us with that disorienting feeling. I, I bring it up, I, I mention all that as we continue in our series this morning through the Gospel of Matthew, Kingdom Come, and, and looking at this opening section of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in particular, because if you haven't noticed already, uh, some of Jesus' teaching here sounds as strange sounds as counterintuitive to our ears as some of the advice of Carol's characters in Wonderland gave to Alice did. I mean, we're reading this like God sees as blessed those who are poor in spirit. God sees as blessed mourning people. And we're just like, huh? And then if those two descriptions didn't sound strange enough, the beatitude we're looking at today, 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This has got to take home the award for the strangest, most confusing teaching of Jesus as yet, right? Because not only is it confusing to us as well, it also sounds just, just sounds wrong. Like, no, they won't. That's what we think anyway, because at least for those of us living in a modern 21st century Western context anyway, this goes against virtually everything we believe, everything we've been taught, everything we're told again and again and again about how to get ahead in life. This just completely different. Uh, humility? Weakness? No, 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 no. That's not how you get ahead in life. Uh, hard work. Uh, getting up earlier and going to bed later than the other guy. Stepping on whoever you need to step on in order to climb up the next rung in the corporate or social ladder. Eat or be eaten. Right? That, that's the only way you're ever going to get ahead in life. That's how you inherit the earth, we're told. Uh, a sentiment unashamedly promoted on a building-sized billboard ad uh, put up by Nike that I drove by one day that was featuring, it had David Beckham just after he'd scored a goal and he was all celebrating, and underneath the caption simply read this, the meek shall inherit nothing. And because we believe that, I, whether, no matter what we say, I think we actually do believe that. Even if we want to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt here and be like, well, hey, listen, maybe that worked back in your day, Jesus. Because we believe, no, no, the meek will actually inherit nothing, we still tend to, I believe, largely ignore, pass over this teaching of Jesus today because like Alice, we can't discern whether Jesus' guidance here will help or harm us. It kind of seems more like harm. But the result being that we simply then miss out on the blessed reality that Jesus promises for the meek in his kingdom, namely that we'll inherit the earth. Because we ignore the meekness, we miss out on the blessing that Jesus says his kingdom citizens have for living this way. And yet, I believe when we come to understand that rather than weakness, rather than calling us to some sort of being a, being a cowering doormat, what Jesus means by meek is actually power that is under control. Power willingly surrendered surrendered not because of any lack of ability but in order to serve the best interests of others well all of a sudden we'll see that jesus teaching here is actually about a superior strength that he's describing when he describes his kingdom citizens as meek he's talking about far stronger citizens not not weak cowering timid people and we'll begin to see all over the place how meekness shows up in the way that god relates to us as well as in the way that we are to relate back to God as well as to others. And actually, that last point there, that's, that's how I want to divide up the way we look at our passage today, this third beatitude from the passage, showing you two things, the meekness of God towards us, and then our meekness towards God and others. Meekness of God towards us, our meekness towards God and others. So if you've closed your Bibles... Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again to this passage here, Matthew 5, verse 5. Follow along with me as Jesus teaches us about the truly blessed status of the meek in his kingdom. Okay, so let's look first of all at the meekness of God towards us. The meekness of God towards us. Now just a very 
brief, quick recap just to make sure that we're all still on the same page here. Remember, as I said two weeks ago, this opening section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, from the Latin beatus, meaning happy or blessed one. This is, this is a unique section. It is separate from the rest of Jesus' teaching. Rather than being another description of something we're supposed to do as citizens in his kingdom, the Beatitudes are a description, remember, first of who we are as citizens or who it is that Jesus is making us more and more to be as citizens in his kingdom, which is actually an incredibly important distinction to make and keep in mind throughout each of these eight Beatitudes that we look at. The reason is because it'll keep you from seeing any one of these descriptions as something you have to try to do. Oh, I guess I got to take that on in order to become a kingdom citizen. No, no, no. These are descriptions of who we are and becoming more and more as citizens already of his kingdom. So remembering that with that understanding in mind, let's consider, first of all, how God demonstrates this description of a kingdom citizen himself towards us. And again, as, as we enter into this and we think about that word meek, it's just, in our culture, it's so distorted to mean something else. I just want to ask you to, as much as you can, just try to push any idea out of your mind that by meek, Jesus means being weak, timid, cowering doormats. For on the contrary, listen, as Leon Morris puts it so well, he says, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. The meek are not simply submissive because they lack the resources to to be anything else. True meekness may be a quality of the strong, those who could assert themselves but choose not to. And honestly, where else do we see strength, power under control more perfectly demonstrated than in the life of Jesus? The one by whom and for whom the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, all things were created the one in whom the, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and yet who also, there in Philippians 2, Paul tells us, being in the very nature of God, being this fullness of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in a likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You just put those two things beside the, each other and you see this is like the very epitome of meekness. In fact, maybe you knew this already, I don't know. One of Jesus, in one of Jesus' most beautiful calls to the, the weary and heavy laden to come unto him and find rest for their souls, a few chapters later in Matthew 11, Jesus chooses this exact same word, meek, to describe himself, to describe what he's like, same Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am, most translations will say, for I am gentle, lowly of heart. The word is also meek. It's the exact same word in Greek, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So Jesus here is saying that to be meek is to be just like me. Being To be meek is to be like Jesus. And, and yet clearly when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, yes, while you see him uh, demonstrating gentleness, uh, kindness, unbelievable tenderness. Yes, all those things. Nowhere do you see Jesus acting in any way that could be truly described as weak or timid. Consider, for example, Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane just before he goes to trial and to the cross, which although on the surface looks like weakness because the guys can just walk up and grab him. As we keep reading, 
we realize that this is actually an intentional submission of power. Because what does Jesus do? He calls off the rescue mission. He calls off the counterattack from Peter and says, put away your sword. He goes on, don't you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will send at once more than 12 legions of angels? But then how might the scriptures be fulfilled? So you see, it's not that Jesus doesn't have the ability in a moment to be rescued. He is intentionally surrendering and laying down power. Or hours later during his mock trial before the religious leaders when Jesus, the one by whom and for whom all things are created, is blindfolded and then spit on, struck and slapped in the face as they mockingly ask him, prophesy, who hit you? You ever been slapped in the face by somebody before? For most of us, that's go time. Um... Jesus experiences this, lets it happen. Uh, or, or even standing silent before Pilate when, when a word spoken in his defense would bring about his freedom. Do you see it? This, this, this is not weakness in any sense of the word, but an unfathomable display of restraint, of power under control, where Jesus, being in the very nature of God, could have easily defended himself at any moment. He could have lit these fools up in a second, slapping him in the face, trying to arrest him. It's like, no, out. He could have done that in a moment, and yet instead, we see Jesus surrendering power, surrendering position, surrendering his very life to serve the good of another, in this case, of you and of me and of all who would find shelter and experience redemption under his willing sacrifice. And that's the point. It was a willing sacrifice. As Jesus plainly says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It's a willing submission of power. The point is this. In describing his kingdom citizens as meek, Jesus is in no way calling us to be these weak, timid people who just get walked over all the time with this kind of Nice but empty, impossible-sounding promise that, you know, well, one day you're going to inherit the earth. Don't worry. Like, no, no, that's, that's not at all what's going on. On the contrary, as we see perfectly displayed in God's demonstration of meekness towards us in sending Jesus and then the resulting eternal benefit, we see that Jesus is calling us to an infinitely more powerful and yet, yes, also more difficult demonstration of strength that willingly surrenders that power in order to see, serve the needs of others ahead of our own. That's what he's calling us to. That's what true power looks like, says Jesus. And that's what will truly lead you to inherit all that you're seeking to gain through, through grasping and clawing your way through life. This is how you actually get it. It's, it's gaining through losing. And the incredible truth to consider here is that before calling any of his kingdom citizens to seek to live this way themselves, Jesus first demonstrated living that costly reality for us himself. In effect, saying like this. Okay, so that's the meekness of God towards us. Uh, the last thing I want to look at together is how it is we now live out this reality ourselves as citizens of his kingdom. So let's look lastly now at our meekness towards God and others. Our meekness towards God 
and others. So to begin, uh, something that you may have noticed um, as we were reading through this is that there's something of a crossover, like a connection between what we looked at two weeks ago about Jesus' kingdom citizens having this poverty of spirit and what we're looking at today of kingdom citizens being meek. Did you, did you sense that as all, as, at all as we were talking about this? For when you truly understand yourself in relation to God, namely that, that my spiritual bank account was completely empty, I was completely spiritually bankrupt before God saved me, and my citizenship in his kingdom is entirely dependent on his love and grace alone, it makes it far easier when I understand that to then to adopt a gentle, meek posture towards God and others. The opposite, I think, also being true to the degree to which I am not poor in spirit will be the degree to which I struggle to surrender anything, power or, or otherwise, for the benefit of somebody else. Which, I don't know, maybe doesn't seem like that big a deal to you. Um, nobody's perfect. You know, we're all works in progress, which, yeah, that's, that's right, that's true. We are. And yet, the fact remains, in that very same passage from Philippians 2, where Paul summarizes the meekness of God toward us in Jesus, immediately before that, Paul writes this. Maybe you know it already. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, which the clear implication there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then the connecting verse, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some of your translations will say, uh, uh, our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not count equality, and goes on to describe it. Literally, so describing for us the meekness that we're all to strive towards in, in detail, and then basing it in the meekness that God demonstrated towards us. Saying, as, as God was meek towards you, you now are to be meek towards others. You see that? Which again, we've got to remind ourselves, none of that has anything to do with doing this to try to earn our blessed status as a citizen in God's kingdom. No, no, that's a status that's already been completed by the work of another on our behalf. And yet, hopefully, you're beginning to see now, it's that understanding that, that I'm a citizen because of the work of another, the meekness of another for me, that highlights exactly why our being poor in spirit is so essential to our being meek. Because when I agree with God that I brought absolutely nothing to the table, right? My citizenship in his kingdom was based entirely on his work on my behalf alone. Then I'm going to be far more likely to want to live out a grateful response to what he's done to me. Or what he's done for me. A response which I think is demonstrated in meekness. Our meekness both towards God as well as towards others. Okay, so great. Well, then, what does that look like? Well, great question. In uh, his work on this passage, D.A. Carson describes meekness in this way. Listen, meekness, he says, is a controlled desire to see the interests of others advance ahead of my own. A controlled desire. He said, well, there we have that power under control to see the desires or to see the interests of others advance ahead of my own. So notice there, he didn't say, I don't have any interests now. I don't matter. I don't, I don't have any status anymore. And he simply said that I seek to advance the interests of others ahead of my own, before my own. 
Okay, so using that definition, let's consider, first of all, what a grateful desire to see the interests of God advance ahead of my own might look like. I think a clear example of that we see in the life of Jesus, or if we want to see what this looks like, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, just before he is arrested, which we talked about a moment ago. Uh, He's crying out to the Father, face pressed into the ground, crying out to God for what mattered most to him. Take this cup away from me. I don't want to do this. Is there any other way we can do this? And yet, in the midst of that, still surrendering the outcome of his prayer, the outcome of this desire to the Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Trusting that God, the Father, knew best and that the Father's plans and purposes rightly superseded his. And so then, with that example in mind, consider then now the orientation of your own heart. Let's let's transfer that into how we relate to God and ask, first of all, think about your own life. Only you can answer this question. What is that thing or or things in your life right now that are just of of pressing importance to you? Something of deep, what are those deep longings, those passionate desires that you've been crying out to God in prayer for? What are you asking God for saying, God, please do this? Think about it for a minute. What is that thing? What are those things for you? And once you have that thing in your mind, a grateful desire to see the interests of God advance ahead of my own then might, like, might look like simply asking this question. Can I conclude my prayer for that thing in the same way Jesus concluded his prayer? Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Can I end my prayers like that and truly mean it? Let's listen, hear me. That doesn't mean for a second being a citizen in God's kingdom is about, oh, you got to kill off all your hopes and dreams. You're not allowed to want anything anymore. Just let God tell you what to do. That's not the heart of God for us. Point is, in light of all God has done in our lives, freely welcoming me as a citizen in his kingdom, am I at least willing to surrender those good things, should God have an even better for me? Can I surrender the good for God's even better? Can I say in my prayer, can I say, God, this is what I want. This is what I'm asking you for. I'm pleading you for in my life, and yet you've shown me such amazing grace, unimaginable kindness. You've been so good to me. I know I can trust that if you're saying you have something even better for me, then I want that instead. That's what it means. I think that's one clear way I can demonstrate a grateful response to seeing the interests of God advance ahead of my own. I think it's also one of the ways that you can know that you're growing in meekness towards God when you can lift up those desires of your heart but keep open hands on them. Trusting that God will either provide this thing that I'm asking him for because he's so good or will provide me with something infinitely better because he's so good. And then finally, let's consider what a grateful desire to see the interests of others advance ahead of my own might look like. And honestly, this in some respects is a lot harder for the majority of us. 
particularly living in the Western uh, the West right now, where we've developed this highly individualistic society. This is my world, my truth, my whatever, as well as this scarcity mindset where there's only a limited amount of success, limited amount of happiness in this world, which means I'm now in competition with everybody else around me to ensure that I get more or at least as much of all those things as I see everybody else getting on my Facebook and Instagram feed. And yet, do you see how that mindset just reinforces over and over again that same belief, the meek shall inherit nothing? Because if you're my competition, and I give up fighting and clawing, even for a moment, to serve your interests ahead of my own, then according to that mindset anyways, you're the one that inherits the earth. I I inherit nothing. Why would I want to do that? And, And... and I know when, when we hear a message like this that's kind of pressing in on that attitude and, and, and the Spirit starts pressing on our hearts and, and we start to begin to see, well, okay, wait a minute, like if God was meek towards me and, 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 and I didn't deserve it and I want my life to be shaped to be like Jesus, I guess maybe I do need to think about serving the interests of others ahead of my own in some places. It's like... Again, maybe this is just me, but sometimes I just tend to want to respond to that leading in the most simple, basic, bare minimum kind of fashion. Like, okay, let's see, i got to be meek here. Uh, You know what I'm going to do? I'm driving. I'm going to let that person merge in in front of me. See that, God? You see how I'm being meek here? No, no, not you. Just one. Uh, Yeah, okay. See that, God? Or you know what? I'm going to let my wife hold the remote today. You see, God? You see what I'm doing? You see, God, how I'm letting... My daughters today choose which radio station we're going to listen to in the car. Thank you, God. And then I head over to my imaginary beatitude chart. Let's see, meekness, check. Okay, what else we got? What else do we need to do? And, okay, listen, I don't, I don't want to discount any of those simple actions. Maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe that's just where we all need to begin in learning to just pry our hands off the corporate or social ladder that we've been trying to climb, begin to stop seeing everybody around you as competition. And and so great, good. If that's where you need to begin, great. But maybe this, the call is like, don't stop there. Like, I wonder if, if we really consider the fullness of how Jesus was meek towards us, of how Jesus was meek towards you. Maybe you couldn't seek to also go beyond that and go a little bit deeper to seeing the interests of others advance ahead of your own. Think about it. For Jesus, being meek towards you meant leaving places of comfort and safety and security in order to serve your interests above his own. Where could you do that? Where could you step outside of places of comfort and safety and security in order to serve and advance the interests of someone else. For Jesus, being meek towards you meant humbling himself, taking on the role of a servant. Where could you do something like that in your life? Take on a job or, or, or a role that you see as being beneath you in order to serve the best interests of someone else? Where could you uh, give up an opportunity to advance your own career and position and portfolio and highlight or, or give recognition to somebody else? Let them get the recognition. Let them get the advancement instead of you. Or in his earthly ministry, Jesus 
being meek meant giving up time and energy and resources in order to build into the lives of others, particularly his, his 12 disciples. Where could you sacrifice some of those things, your time, your energy, your resources in order to build into the lives of either others to see them become disciples, to see them become citizens, or to build them and grow them up to be stronger disciples who become disciple makers themselves? These are just some examples. There's so many examples that we could look at when we look at the fullness of how Jesus was meek towards us. The point is, you'll also know that you're growing in meekness when that, that, that competitive scarcity mindset that we all have begins to wane, begins to not have such a powerful hold on you, and your desire to surrender power and your practice of surrendering positions so that the needs of others can be met and be served and you see that increasing. When that's happening, you'll know that you are growing in meekness, in this characteristic of citizens in the kingdom. As I said when we began, I know this, this sounds wrong, doesn't it? It sounds foolish. It sounds like we're choosing, we're intentionally choosing to lose out. And in the end, feels like it will accomplish anything but inheriting the earth for us. And yet, something you may have already come to learn yourself in life as well, is that sometimes what seems counterintuitive is actually the path to victory. And, and what looked like the, the obvious answer wasn't. Have, have you had an experience like that in your life? I think we see it all over the place. Uh, something I remember learning years ago, my father and I, we used to train and learn martial arts together. And so at, at one point we transitioned out of some of the harder styles, like uh, hard style martial arts like kung fu and uh, kickboxing, that kind of thing. We transitioned into more some of the softer, more flowing styles like Aikido and Jiu-Jitsu. And if you've studied martial arts yourself or you've watched it, uh, you might know that usually in the hard style martial arts, victory is achieved most times by being able to apply the most amount of force in a punch, in a kick, in a, in a knee or whatever against your opponent. If my strike is stronger than your block, then that's the path to victory. I win, which doesn't that sound very much like almost exactly like our world right now. If I can push harder than you, I get more. That's the path to victory. And yet, the counterintuitive reality in martial arts like Aikido is that the path to victory there is accomplished not by resisting the force of your opponent with a superior force, but by absorbing that force into yourself and then redirecting it. Which, if you've been made a citizen of the kingdom yourself, is the very counterintuitive reality I think we see in the message of the gospel. Because think about it. For in our rebellion against God, he could have easily overcome us with a superior force and just destroyed us. He could have done that. And yet, instead, in meekness, in gentleness, in humility, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that my sin deserved and then redirected it, not away from himself, but into himself, away from us and into himself in order to accomplish our redemption. And yeah, it looked like weakness. It looked like failure. It looked like loss and losing hanging up there on a Roman cross. 
And yet, in the economy of the kingdom, we know now that giving up power, laying down his royal position, his very life, in order to serve our greatest need was actually the path to victory. And that God's response to Jesus' meekness towards us, we read later in Philippians 2 there, was that God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And listen, here's the point. Here's the point of this beatitude. What Jesus is saying to you and to me, kingdom citizens, he's saying, and so it will be with you and with me. When meekness when advancing the interests of God and others above our own becomes more and more descriptive of our lives as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. So it will be with you. Yes, it will look like losing lots of times. It will look like we're giving up ground that we've earned. It will look like the most foolish of investments according to the world's standards. And it will appear to be guidance that harms us more than helps us. And yet, as we clearly see exemplified in the life of Jesus and in the message of the gospel, in the economy of the kingdom, meekness is actually the path to victory and to inheriting everything. Amen. Amen. Got it. Help us to do this.